What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the JT Sports Podcast. I'm your host, JT. On tonight's episode, we're going to be discussing Ron Rivera, how the pressure is starting to heat up. That hot seat is severely hot right now. Things are not looking good for the Washington Commanders, and they got to play the Philadelphia Eagles to week. Ravens or the Kansas City Chiefs? Who do you guys think is the best team in the NFL? We're also going to have some game breakdowns. We got to break down Bengals 49ers, Georgia, Florida. Is Oklahoma on upset alert against Kansas, Colorado, UCLA? And we lastly got to talk about Oregon and Utah. Then I got to reveal my week nine college football playoff rankings. Happy that you guys are joining me on this wonderful Tuesday night. Like always, remember that we're not just a YouTube channel. Every episode of the podcast is available on all audio formats. Wherever you get your podcast from, the JT Sports Podcast is available. Apple, Google, Spotify, Amazon. You can find us on any podcasting platform. All you got to do is type in the JT Sports Podcast and it will pop up. If you enjoyed tonight's episode, Please give us a five-star review. We will greatly appreciate it. We're trying to get to 100 five-star reviews on Apple and Spotify by the end of this year. So if you enjoy the content and you want to support us, the best way to do so is by giving us a five-star review on Apple and Spotify. It only takes like 30 seconds to do so. So go ahead, get your smartphone and give us a five-star review if you haven't already. Also, like my guy Royal Jones says in the comment section, like and share the stream. Happy that you guys are joining me on this Tuesday night. Let's get into it, man. Things are starting to hit the fan for the Washington Commanders. They just lost to Tyrod Taylor and the New York Giants 7-14. New owner of the team, Magic Johnson, was not happy. He went to Twitter to voice his displeasure, said that you're not going to win too many games when your offense only puts up seven points. Jonathan Allen had a lot of harsh words after this loss, after they lost to the New York Giants after the game. Jonathan Allen pretty much went off and said, you know, he's tired of this shit. He's tired of losing. He's been part of the commanders for seven years, and he's just tired of this shit. And Ron Rivera, people are really getting tired of him, man. And there's a strong possibility that if the commanders fall to three and five after they lose to the Philadelphia Eagles, potentially, Ron Rivera could get fired midseason and Eric Bieniemy could take over as the interim head coach. And when you think about the Washington Commanders coming into this season, it's not like too many people had high expectations for this team, even though it's kind of disappointing to say that because this is a pretty talented football team. They got one of the most talented defensive lines in the whole entire NFL and this defensive line has played at a really high level this year. Chase Young, Jonathan Allen, Deron Payne, Montez Sweat. Your linebackers have played pretty good. But overall, this defense has taken a really big step back this season compared, how they, compared to how they have played in previous seasons. And offensively, yeah, they got some nice receivers. Sam Howell has looked pretty good at times, but this offensive line is absolutely abysmal. 
Did you know that the commander's offensive line is on pace to give up the most sacks in NFL history, more than what the Houston Texans gave up when David Carr got sacked a million bajillion times? The commanders are a team that definitely is starting to bottom out. And this is around the time of the year where we start to see the contenders separate themselves from the pretenders. And this is also where we start to find out who's head coach material, and who's going to be in the unemployment line. It looks like Ron Rivera, if the Washington Commanders can't beat the Philadelphia Eagles this week, he's going to be getting the pink slip. I know that a lot of people really want Eric Bieniemy to get the opportunity to be a head coach, but talking to a good amount of Commanders fans out there, they don't really think that he's going to change anything, even if he gets to become the head coach for the remainder of the season, depending on when the Commanders choose to part ways with Ron Rivera. You look at the play calling this year, hasn't really been that great. It's been slightly better, but there hasn't really been any noticeable improvement with this offense. And my guy, Juan Gotti Talking Sports, go ahead and check my guy out. He said that Airbnb is the black version of Scott Turner. Airbnb, he was the offensive coordinator for the Kansas City Chiefs for the last couple of seasons prior to taking this offensive coordinator job with Washington. And during his time with Kansas City, he was part of two Super Bowls. He also was a pretty big part of assembling the game plans, and he did a pretty good job when he was on Kansas City staff. Then you have the conflict that comes with Eric Bieniemy of the fact that People believe he should be a head coach, but he hasn't been given the opportunity. And you got to ask, why hasn't Airbnb been announced the head coach of an NFL franchise yet if he's just such this great offensive mind? Well, rumors say that he doesn't interview well. He kind of clashes with players from time to time. He's not really the most likable coach. So there's a reason why Eric Enemy is the offensive coordinator for the Washington Commanders and why he's trying to prove himself. And he hasn't really done a good job at that. So even if Ron Rivera gets fired, I don't think Eric Enemy is going to fix much because he's the guy calling the plays and the offense hasn't been good. And before this season started, I picked the Commanders to make it to the postseason this year. Now, I didn't have them being anything special. I didn't have this team being anything more than a seventh seed. I thought that as long as this offense could be average and this defense continued to play the way that they have had under Ron Rivera, I felt there was no way the Commanders could miss out on the playoffs. But this team, offensively, they're not great. They got some good receivers. Their running backs are pretty solid. But with this shitty offensive line, there's not too many games that the Washington Commanders are going to be able to win. And I strongly doubt this is going to be a playoff team. And I'm not somebody who changes my opinions this fast. I normally wait until around Thanksgiving. But the Washington Commanders, they're just a complete mess on the offensive line and if you can't block anybody up front then the game kind of is already lost you can blame the play calling you can blame Sam Howell it doesn't matter who you have calling the plays if as soon as your quarterback gets the snap 1.5 seconds in he's already going down Sam Howell has been the most sacked quarterback in the NFL this season we thought the New York Giants offensive line was terrible the Washington commander said hold our beer because we're about to show you the true definition of what an awful offensive line looks like. And the offensive line was a big question mark for Washington coming into this season. But I don't think anybody pictured this offensive line being as bad as what they have been. 
If you're a Commanders fan, I know you got to be feeling a little bit disappointed because there was a good amount of optimism going into this season. Like I said, Sam Howell has played at a pretty side level. Yeah, he's had some highs, he's had some lows, but for the most part, I think that he's been fairly good, and I definitely think that the Commanders definitely have their quarterback situation solidified for the next couple of years, but you're not going to do your young quarterback any favors if he's playing behind the worst offensive line in the National Football League. And Ron Rivera came out earlier today and said that he doesn't anticipate Washington making any big moves at the trade deadline, which kind of blows my mind because... Doesn't Ron Rivera know that the time is clicking? He's on the clock. He needs to make something shake soon. And I don't think the Washington Commanders are going to be able to beat the Philadelphia Eagles. Do you? With the way this offensive line has played, Sam Howell just might break the all-time record for the most sacked quarterback in the NFL game. He just might get sacked 20 times against the Philadelphia Eagles. It kind of blows my mind how Ron Rivera just refuses to go about trying to improve this roster and trying to make drastic changes. With how this offensive line has played, you would think that he would be on the phone right now trying to make some trade calls to get a good right tackle or to trying to find some help at offensive guard. But instead, he just wants to sit back and not like everything is okay. No, everything is not okay, Ron Rivera. What be wrong with some of these coaches sometimes? It's like these coaches know that they need to make some changes. Their job is on the line. And instead, they just sit back and relax. Ron Rivera, you need to do something ASAP, expeditiously. You need to call the New York Jets to see what they want for Makai Becton. See if you can get some additional help at guard. Hell, even try to trade for left tackle for the Denver Broncos, Garrett Bowles. But it just kind of confuses me how Ron Rivera is going about this all nonchalantly. Like he's been getting called out by Magic Johnson damn near every week. And that may be a good thing, believe it or not, because anytime Magic Johnson calls out the team, ironically, the commanders end up winning right after. I don't get why Ron Rivera just has so much complacency. And when Washington first hired Ron Rivera, I'm going to be honest. I thought that this was going to be a really good hire. Ron Rivera is a defensive-minded coach, and he was inheriting a team that already had a pretty much tailor-made defense, a really good front seven with arguably a top-five defensive line in the league. All he really needed to do was figure out the quarterback situation and get the offense settled, and he's been unable to figure out the other side of the football outside the defense and even the defense has taken a step back Emmanuel Forbes is a bust a lot of us were scratching our damn heads when they decided to take this man over Christian Gonzalez and he's already benched I mean we saw the mental breakdown that Emmanuel Forbes had on the sidelines and I felt bad for the brother because he was let out he was left out there to die pretty much you didn't give this brother no help and although you don't want to see that out of your rookie quarter cornerback, you do want to see your rookie cornerback going out there and dominating like how Christian Gonzalez did. But the Washington Commanders, they suck at drafting. They suck at building a good team. And Ron Rivera sucks as a head coach. He blows. But I don't think Arab enemy is going to be anything better. If you're a Washington Commanders fan, you might as well go ahead 
Get that plastic brown bag and put it over your head because this is going to be a very long season. Ron Rivera said we got 10 games left of this season. A lot can change. I don't really see too much changing outside of the losses in the L column pretty much. Washington, things aren't looking good for this organization. Even though they do have new ownership, you got Dan Snyder out of there, Ron Rivera and Eric Enemy. they probably are going to be the next thing cooking on out of the commander's organization because I don't get how Eric Enemy can be better from Ron Rivera. He's supposed to be an upgrade at OC, and he hasn't proven to be that. So if he's not a good offensive coordinator, what makes you think that this dude is going to be a good head coach? If the offense is struggling and the offense isn't functioning at a high level, I don't think Eric Bieniemy is going to prove to be able to turn around the Washington Commander season. And they're playing in a really tough division. Even though the New York Giants have their fair share of injuries, they still beat you with Tyrod Taylor. They still got your number. You struggled against the New York Giants last year. You continue to struggle against the New York Giants. I think it's time for the Washington Commanders to just go ahead, get the get the broom, and just completely, you know, sweep out everything. Just go ahead, clean house. I don't even get why Ron Rivera is still the head coach at this moment. You might as well just go ahead and fire him. If Magic Johnson is going to call out the team after every single loss, I don't see why not go ahead and give Eric enemy a chance, even though Eric enemy isn't really going to be able to do too much because the team isn't great on the offensive side of the football. This offensive line is dog water. I like the receivers. I like Sam Howell, but if you can't protect the brother and you can't give Sam Howell enough time to get the ball out to Curtis Samuel and Terry McLaurin, then there's not too much you can do by changing head coaches. At this point, the Washington Commanders might as well go ahead and do one or two things. If you're not going to fire Ron Rivera after Philadelphia and you're going to wait till later in the season, you might as well go ahead and tank. Honestly, you might as well go ahead and try to get Caleb Williams. Although I do like Sam Howell, if you got a chance to get Caleb Williams, you go ahead and do so. Sam Howell does have a promising future, but at the same time, when you got somebody like Caleb Williams available to get drafted, who can prove to be a significant upgrade ASAP over a guy like Sam Howell, you go ahead and you take Caleb Williams. But I don't think that there's too many changes that the Washington Commanders can make from a coaching standpoint, that's going to turn around this season. This team just isn't good. If you can't block anybody up front, you already lost the majority of games that you played in. When the Baltimore Ravens blew out the Detroit Lions, a lot of people started hype, hyping up this team and hopping on the bandwagon. Now, you guys already know that I've been high on the Baltimore Ravens before this season even started. I was telling people that this is a top three team in the AFC going into this year. And I'm now happy to see a lot of people hopping on the Baltimore Ravens love fest with me. Lamar Jackson is having an MVP caliber season, and it's no surprise because Greg Roman is gone. You got T-Money in there at offensive coordinator dialing up some fantastic plays, and he's been bringing the best out of Lamar Jackson. Lamar Jackson this year has looked like the black version of Tom Brady. He's been really great in operating the quick passing game. He's been money with throwing the D-ball downfield, and now that the Lamar Jackson finally has a good group of wide receivers to throw the football, ball to I don't think there's no reason why the Ravens shouldn't be able to make it out of the AFC this season and many people are calling the Baltimore Ravens the best team in the NFL now here's the thing about that right 
The Ravens are one of the best teams in the NFL, but are they the best team in the league over the Kansas City Chiefs? We got to talk about it because Kansas City right now, they're 6-1. They made easy work of the LA Chargers. The Ravens made easy work of the Detroit Lions, but they got two losses. We can't forget about the Baltimore Ravens losing to the Pittsburgh Steelers. The Pittsburgh Steelers are nowhere as good as what the Baltimore Ravens are. They got a good defense, but their offense is abysmal, and this is coming from a Steelers fan. You see, I think the Ravens are a great team, but I'm not going to say they're better than the Kansas City Chiefs right now. The Kansas City Chiefs, their defense has played at a high level, and so has the Baltimore Ravens, but the Chiefs have the best record in this conference at the moment. Which kind of puzzles me why people are putting the Ravens over Kansas City. Did you guys see how fast people are quick to change their opinions? Before this season, people were saying Lamar can't throw. The Ravens aren't that great. They don't know about Todd Munkin being the offensive coordinator. All of a sudden, they beat the Detroit Lions. And people just forget how they played against Tennessee and how they played against the Pittsburgh Steelers. Funny how one win can change everything. Now, I like the Ravens, but I'm not going to say that they're a better team than Kansas City right now. I think they got a great chance to go on the road if they face off against Kansas City in the postseason this year and beat them. But right now, I think that the Chiefs should be viewed as the best team in the National Football League. I know we had questions about Kansas City's receivers. The offensive line kind of can be wonky at times. But for the most part, Kansas City has been the most consistent team in the NFL this year. Their only loss came week one to the Detroit Lions. Maybe people are saying that the Ravens are better than Kansas City because they blew out the Detroit Lions and the Chiefs lost to them. But that's week one. And I don't really get behind the whole, well, this team is better because they beat this team and this team lost to this team. It doesn't make sense to me. The reason why these kinds of arguments never make sense to me, the Ravens are better than the Chiefs because they beat the Lions. The Lions beat the Chiefs because the NFL is a week-to-week sport. Okay, just because one team lost to the same team and another team beat that same team, that doesn't mean that the other team is better. It just means that, you know, that week, that team was able to go ahead and get the job done. And week one is the best time to pull off upsets. If Kansas City was to play the Detroit Lions again today, who would you pick to win that game? The Lions or the Chiefs? I will go with the Chiefs. If the Lions and the Chiefs played 10 times, who will win the majority of the games? I'm going with Kansas City, which is why you can't go ahead and say, oh, the Ravens are better than Kansas City because they beat Detroit and Detroit beat the Chiefs. That logic just doesn't make a lot of sense. Based on that scenario, we can say that the Kansas City Chiefs could be better than the Ravens because they will blow the shit out of the Pittsburgh Steelers if they were to play right now. And this is coming from a Pittsburgh Steelers fan. The Ravens right now, are a really good football team. But I'm not ready to put them over Kansas City just quite yet. Now, if they play Kansas City in the playoffs, I think they got a very good chance to pull off the win. Lamar Jackson has been the second-best quarterback in the NFL this season. 
I know that sounds like a bold and strong take, but think about it. Outside of Patrick Mahomes, who's been better? Or who's been on the same level as him? Lamar Jackson. You go and you look at all of the Ravens games this season, Lamar Jackson has been playing the best football of his whole entire career this season. The reason why the Ravens aren't undefeated has nothing to do with Lamar Jackson. It has everything to do with these wide receivers sometimes not playing up to the level of talent that they have. Last week against the Detroit Lions was the first time all season the Baltimore Ravens offense really put it all together. Against the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Tennessee Titans, these receivers were struggling to catch the football. They weren't really doing a great job at getting open outside of, you know, Zay Flowers. And at times, the Baltimore Ravens can kind of tend to play down to competition. That's why I'm not quite ready yet to crown the Ravens as the top team in the NFL. Just like how people were crowning the Detroit Lions as the top team in the NFL only after the 49ers and the Eagles lost. Like, people are just so easy to flip-flop and hop on the hype train. Like, I've been on the Baltimore Ravens hype train, and I got no problem with a lot of you guys hopping on board with me. But I'm not going to say that they're better than the Kansas City Chiefs just because they beat Detroit and Detroit beat Kansas City week one. They beat Kansas City week one. What is it now? It's week eight. That was seven weeks ago. Move on from that. It's a week-to-week sport. Right now, Kansas City has looked like the best team in the National Football League. Meanwhile, the Philadelphia Eagles, they're 6-1. and one, And a couple of weeks ago, people made it seem like they were one of the worst teams in the NFL. I like the Ravens. I'm a big believer in Lamar Jackson and Todd Munkin, and I believe that the Ravens are going to win the AFC North this year. I believe that they're going to do some really big things in the postseason. But right now, if I had to rank these teams from number one to number two, I'm starting off with the Chiefs at number one because they've been the most consistent, and I've got to go with the Ravens at number two. The Ravens have two losses for a reason. The Chiefs only have one. They've been on a six-game, seven-game win streak ever since they beat the Detroit Lions, and they definitely are going to be in the conversation to have the number one seed, but so are the Baltimore Ravens. Anytime Lamar Jackson is healthy, the Ravens are always in the conversation for having the number one overall seed in this conference. Every time he gets injured, that's when the season starts to go left for the Baltimore Ravens. As long as Lamar Jackson can stay healthy, they're going to be in the same conversation. They're going to be in the same tier like the Kansas City Chiefs are. And that they are front runners to win the conference and to potentially represent the AFC and this year's Super Bowl. But right now, I just think that the Chiefs have been a little bit more consistent than what the Baltimore Ravens have up to this point this season. The Ravens are a good team. I've been high on the Ravens going back to the offseason, but I'm still going with Kansas City as being the top dog in the NFL right now. The San Francisco 49ers season is in danger of going off the rails. They are coming into this game against Cincinnati on a two-game losing streak. They got upset. A couple of weeks ago to the Cleveland Browns with no Deshaun Watson. Then they lost to Kirk Cousins on Monday Night Football. And they're playing the Cincinnati Bengals at home. But the Bengals are coming off a bye. 
Brock Purdy has not played his best football. A lot of people are starting to lose a little bit of faith in Brock Purdy. And there are a good amount of people who are saying that Brock Purdy is Jimmy Garoppolo 2.0. And I'm just like, damn. In two games, people have already went from Brock Purdy being an MVP candidate, an MVP frontrunner, to being Jimmy Garoppolo 2.0. Man, it's crazy how people flip-flop their opinions after two weeks. I still believe in Brock Purdy. I just think that the San Francisco 49ers aren't the team that many people thought they were. And here's the thing about the San Francisco 49ers. They got a really good defense. Their offense is really talented too, but Brock Purdy isn't this top five, top 10 quarterback that some people kind of thought that he was. And I think the problem with Brock Purdy is that Many people had a hard time trying to evaluate just how good he truly was because the dude came out of nowhere. He was the last pick of the NFL draft. He comes in out of nowhere against the Miami Dolphins and takes the 49ers all the way to the NFC Championship game. And then this season, he started off the season pretty hot. So people didn't really know where to rank Brock Purdy. They didn't know if he was a top 15 quarterback, a top 5 quarterback, or a top 10 quarterback. Well, now... We're starting to get a pretty good understanding of where we can rank Brock Purdy amongst every starting quarterback in the National Football League. And based on what I've observed from Brock Purdy up to this point, he looks like a top 13 quarterback. And there's nothing wrong with that because you can definitely win a Super Bowl having a top 15, top 13 quarterback. But the thing is that you're not going to be able to rely on these guys week in and week out to carry your team, especially in late game situations. Brock Purdy is somebody who normally takes very good care of the football, but the last couple of weeks, he hasn't done that. In the fourth quarter against the Minnesota Vikings, he threw two back-breaking interceptions, especially that final interception on San Francisco's final offensive possession in the game. Kyle Shanahan was like, damn, what were you thinking? Why were you throwing that pass? And it looked like Kyle Shanahan was starting to get some flashbacks back to Jimmy Garoppolo. Now, I don't think Brock Purdy is Jimmy Garoppolo. I definitely think he's a more athletic quarterback than what Jimmy G is. He has way more mobility. He's able to get outside the pocket, extend plays, buy times for wide receivers to get open. He also can pick up some yards with his legs. I don't really see the Jimmy G comparisons. Maybe people compare the two because, you know, they both have a tendency to turn the ball over and kind of choke in big moments. But I think Brock Purdy is just a completely different quarterback from what Jimmy Garoppolo is. He may not have the strongest arm, but he is really accurate. He throws with good anticipation. I think Brock Purdy is going to be fine. I think the problem is just that Kyle Shanahan needs to get a little bit more innovative on the offensive side of the football. The offense has struggled the last two weeks, so that obviously means that something has to change. And anytime the 49ers go up against a really aggressive defense, this offense tends to struggle because you got to remember, Kyle Shanahan's offense is all about timing and anticipation. When you're going up against teams like Minnesota and Cleveland that send a lot of pressure, that are really aggressive, it throws off the rhythm of these kinds of offenses. Because then the quarterback has to rush his decision making and he kind of can have a hard time getting into rhythm. Going against the Cincinnati Bengals this week, you're going to be facing another really good defense coached by defensive coordinator Lou Anarumo. 
Now, the thing with the Bengals' defense is that I don't think their defense is as good as what the Browns' defense is. The Browns' defense may be the best defense in the NFL this year, even though they gave up a good amount of points to the Indianapolis Colts. But outside of that, the Browns' defense has been the number one defense in the league this year. Cincinnati's defense, I don't think, is too far behind them. Cincinnati, even though their defense is probably going to be able to slow down the 49ers' offense, I don't know about Cincinnati's offense against the 49ers' defense. And there's been some people who have been calling out Steve Wilkes. Steve Wilkes is not the damn problem. Like, giving up 22 points means the defensive coordinator needs to get fired. This defense definitely has taken a little bit of a step back, but that's to be expected. Not because they lost their defensive coordinator from last year, who now is the head coach of the Texans, but I also see that the 49ers secondary isn't as good as what it has been in previous years. And when you look at that Jordan Addison touchdown, when Traverius Ward pretty much got the interception snaps from him, I think that this secondary has a tendency to struggle at times. And they can be vulnerable to giving us some big plays. But I don't think Steve Wilkes is the problem. And I definitely think that this defense should have a better showing against the Cincinnati Bengals offense that now, has dog. really been struggling Come this year. Come on, man. The Bengals offense, man. Outside of that one performance that they had against the Arizona Cardinals, they haven't really looked that good this year. Against the Seattle Seahawks, they struggled to move the ball down the field. Once they put Devon Witherspoon on Jamar Chase, the Bengals offense was struggling to get any wide receivers open. Now, T. Higgins, I think he did miss a couple of games due to injury or whatnot. But this offensive line, they still can't figure it out. We thought when Cincinnati signed Orlando Brown that they finally were going to have this offensive line solidified. And this offensive line is still struggling. Joe Burrow, it still looks like he's trying to get to 100% dealing with that calf injury. And coming off the bye week, hopefully Joe Burrow is back to playing at the level that we've seen him play at over the last couple of years. But this Bengals team is not the Bengals team that we've seen in 2022 and 2021. This offense is still trying to figure themselves out. The 49ers know who they are as a football team. The Bengals do not. I think that the 49ers have a really good opportunity to get a bounce back win against a pretty solid football team. The Cincinnati Bengals coming into this year, many people thought that they could finally break through and win it all this season. But based on how they have played, they haven't looked as good as what they have in their previous iterations. And the Bengals are a team that normally tends to start the season out pretty slow, but I've never really seen the Bengals get out to a slow start where their offense looked this anemic. The 49ers got a really good defensive front. You got Nick Bosa, the best defensive player in the NFL in some people's opinions. You got Javon Hargrave. You got Arik Armstead. Those three guys should be able to wreak havoc on the Cincinnati Bengals offensive line. An offensive line that still is trying to figure things out for like, what, the third consecutive season? I don't think you need to worry about Brock Purdy. Every young quarterback is going to go through some ups and downs. Even Patrick Mahomes went through some ups and downs during his first couple of years. People act like it was just smooth selling for Patrick Mahomes. It's not smooth selling for every single quarterback. Even Mahomes had his struggles. Even Brady had his struggles early. Like every young quarterback goes through some growing pains. And that's what we're seeing out of Brock Purdy. 
I think that the 49ers should bounce back and be able to win this game. I still believe in Brock Purdy, and it's crazy how people are already switching up on him after two lackluster performances. I mean, give the guy a break. He was the last pick in last year's draft. People were making it seem like he was the first overall pick. It's funny how people are more prone to giving first-round quarterbacks more time to prove themselves. But a guy like Brock Purdy comes in out of nowhere, has so much success, and now everybody just wants to change up on him. It's like people were waiting for Brock Purdy to have some bad games so they can call him a fraud. It really bamboozles me how people still believe in Justin Fields, but yet people are already riding off Brock Purdy. Brock Purdy is a solid quarterback. He's not a top 10, a top 5 quarterback. I think the problem... Well, Brock Purdy is that people's expectations were way too high. People were saying that he was the front runner to win MVP. Like, hold your role, man. Like, I know that Brock Purdy has played really well, and I am somebody who's a big believer in him, but I also would be a little naive, not to say that he has a benefit from playing on the the best roster in the NFC, pretty much. You're throwing a Debo, Samuel, Brandon on you. You got a really good offensive line. You got CMC in the backfield. You got one of the best play callers in the last decade and Kyle Shanahan calling plays and a fantastic defense. Of course, things are going to be a little bit easier for Brock Purdy than it would be if he was playing for another team. And I think we kind of got to realize that. But we also have to temper our expectations for Brock Purdy. Brock Purdy isn't this MVP caliber quarterback that some people are trying to make him out to be a couple of weeks ago. And anytime people's expectations get too high, they got to start trying to figure out a reason to justify why they had those high expectations. Instead of just admitting that, hey, I was kind of a little bit wrong on Brock Purdy. I kind of was trying to anoint him as this next great quarterback. Instead of giving this guy more time to prove to us how good he really is. And right now, I think that Brock Purdy is around a top 13, top 11 quarterback in the league. Which means that you're going to have some games where he's not going to be able to lead you to a win. Where he's going to have some fourth quarter meltdowns. And there's going to be some games where the team is going to have to be able to will him to a win. But there's also going to be some games where he's going to ball out. He's going to play well and he can carry you to a win. The thing with having a quarterback that's outside looking in of the top 10 QB is that these quarterbacks tend to not really be reliable on a week-to-week basis for being able to carry a team to a victory. Kirk Cousins on Monday Night Football against the 49ers, that was the best game that we've ever seen him play in prime time. And he's one of those quarterbacks that he's not bad, but he doesn't have too many performances where he just wills a team on his back like he did this past Monday. And that's the same thing with Brock Purdy. If anything, I think that Brock Purdy is kind of a better version of Kirk Cousins, just with more mobility and not that great of an arm. I believe that the 49ers bounce back against the Cincinnati Bengals this week. I'm not riding off Brock Purdy just because he had a couple of off performances. Like, this is the National Football League. We got 17 games in the season. It's a roller coaster ride. Like, people always want to try to be the first to say something. Everybody wants to be the first to say, yeah, I knew Brock Purdy was going to be great. Just like how everybody wants to be the first person to say, man, I knew Brock Purdy was a fraud. Like, I just think that everybody needs to chill out and allow Brock Purdy to continue to play. 
because he's still a fairly young quarterback. He's only in his second season. He still hasn't really played a full season. So we don't really know truly how good this man is. I think we got a pretty good indicator based on how he's played throughout this week that he's a top 13-ish quarterback. He's not one of those MVP-level quarterbacks like a Lamar Jackson, a Josh Allen, or a Joe Burrow. So I like the 49ers to bounce back against the Cincinnati Bengals this week. I think that this could be a low-scoring game. I like the 49ers to win just because they got a pretty solid defense. And I like their defense going up against a struggling Cincinnati Bengals offense. The Bengals offensive line hasn't been that good this year. I think the 49ers should be able to get after Joe Burrow and harass him in this game. And I think that they win this matchup 23-17, to 17, my final score prediction. We got the Florida-Georgia game. Florida is 5-2 going into this matchup. And if they win this game, they could end up taking over for first place in the SEC East. And Georgia... You know, they're a 14-point favorite in this ball game, And it's a little surprising to me because I don't really think that Georgia, based on how they played this season, is 14 points better than Florida. Now, I most definitely could be proven wrong, and Georgia definitely could blow Florida out. The thing with Georgia is that although they do underplay the competition, like they didn't really have a dominating win against Vanderbilt. But one thing about the Bulldogs is that they play up the competition, all right? Anytime Georgia goes up against some of the best teams on their schedule, they normally play their best football. For example, they struggled against Auburn, and then right after that, they beat the brakes off Kentucky, who was ranked going into that matchup. But I think that this game could be really different. And I think that this game is going to be a lot closer than what people expect. The main reason for that is because of how well Graham Mertz has been playing guy quarterback for the Gators this year. Now, let's be honest. Going into this season, most people wrote Graham Mertz off. And Graham Mertz hasn't wrote him back yet. He has 12 touchdowns, only two interceptions. He's on pace to have the best career of his collegiate career up to this point statistically. And this offense has been really good at times. They were really good against South Carolina. They had a really good performance against Vanderbilt. And then they went against Tennessee. Like, yeah, it wasn't as impressive as their offensive performance against Vandy and South Carolina. But their offense did enough that it was able to get the win over a pretty good Vols team who has a pretty good defense. And with the way Georgia's defense has played this year, I definitely think that Florida's offense is more than equipped to be able to put points up on the board in this game. This isn't the same defense that you've seen out of Georgia in 2022 and 2021. The Georgia Bulldogs were destined for a drop-off defensively. People seem to forget that the previous two years of Georgia's defense were considered some of the greatest ever. The 2021 and 2022 Bulldogs defenses are historically great. You're not going to be able to have a historically great defense year after year. The way the secondary has played, I definitely think that Graham Mertz and Ricky Pearsall should be able to have really big games in this matchup. And I definitely can be wrong because Georgia is one of those teams that tends to get up for big games. But I just think that this Florida team is a lot better than what people were given credit for going into this season. Let's be honest. Most people thought that Billy Napier and Florida this year were going to be a, a dumpster fire. Not too many people had this team being 5-2 and two up to this point. And without Brock Bowers, 
Georgia is just a completely different team offensively. Now, they do have a lot of talent on offense. We know that even with them not having Brock Bowers, they still have a bunch of five and four star guys on the roster who can step in and have some production, especially with Dominic Lovett, who they got from the transfer portal from Mizzou. You still got Lab McConkey. I think that Carson Beck has played some really good football, but anytime you lose one of the best players in college football, it's not one of those situations where you go next man up. Like Georgia definitely is going to feel the impact of not having Brock Bowers. And even though the Gators defense hasn't been that great, you know, I think that this could be a game where maybe Georgia's offense comes out a little bit flat. They are coming off a bye, so maybe they will have a little bit of time to be able to figure out how they're going to change their offense, not having Brock Bowers. But even then, Brock Bowers was one of those players where anytime you get in the bind, you can just lean on because he's instant offense. Same thing with Ohio State. Anytime Ohio State was in the bind against Penn State last week, guess who they went to? Marvin Harrison Jr. And if you take Brock Bowers off this Georgia team, and he doesn't play against Auburn, they probably lose that game. So I think with Florida not having to deal with figuring out how to slow down Brock Bowers and them going up against a Georgia defense that has definitely not played up to the level that they have had in the past, it definitely is a formula for them to win this game. For Georgia to blow out Florida, I think, first of all, you got to figure out a way to stop this rushing attack. I think that Florida's offensive line is pretty good. And the second thing they got to be able to do is you got to find a way to get Graham Mertz playing off. Graham Mertz has been playing the best football over the last two, three games. Yeah, he had a off performance against Utah. He didn't look the greatest against Tennessee, but those two teams have some really good defenses, especially Utah. And you can't judge somebody based on what you see from them the first month of the season. Graham Mertz obviously has gotten better ever since week one against Utah. He's gotten better the last couple of weeks. I think that the version of Graham Mertz that we're seeing right now is the best version of Graham Mertz that we're going to see all season because you want to know why? He's hitting his stride. He's really hot right now. He's playing with a lot of confidence. And I don't think that that's being talked about enough in this game. Yeah, Carson Beck has looked like the better quarterback. He's looked like the best quarterback in the SEC up to this point behind Jaden Daniels. But I do think that the gap between Carson Beck and Graham Mertz is not really as big as what you think. You put Graham Mertz on Georgia, I think that they still are just as good as what they are with Carson Beck. What really concerns me for Georgia in this game is their defense. This defense has not really looked that good. I mean, you're getting carved up by Vanderbilt, man. Yeah, I know you blew out Kentucky, but Kentucky doesn't have a quarterback. Even though Devin Leary was good at NC State, this dude just fell off a cliff. And yeah, Kentucky beat Florida, and I know that's what you Georgia fans are going to use to justify why you're going to blow them out, but college football is a week-by-week -week game, and this is a rivalry game. And for you Georgia fans that are going to say, well, Kentucky beat Florida, we blew out Kentucky, I'll tell you this. Yeah, you blew out Kentucky, but what happened against Auburn? Because you were supposed to blow out Auburn, and that game didn't go the way that you thought it would. 
And now you're going into a rivalry game, the Florida-Georgia game. Rivalry games normally tend to be really close. Even though you do have the significant talent advantage in this game, I don't necessarily mean that Georgia isn't a more superior team than Florida from a roster standpoint. We get that. But all I'm saying is that these rivalry games tend to be fairly close. And I think that Florida has the ability to keep this game close because I believe in Graham Mertz. Graham Mertz has been a really fantastic game manager for Florida. And they do have some pretty good young receivers. And with how Georgia's secondary has played, giving up big plays against Vanderbilt and whatnot, I definitely feel this is a good chance for Florida to be able to hang around in this game and pull off the upset. Now, if they're going to win, you're going to need Graham Mertz to play the best game of his whole entire collegiate career. You're going to need him to play better than how he did against South Carolina. Yeah, I'm giving him a lot of credit for how he played against South Carolina, but South Carolina isn't really that good of a team, and they don't really got a good defense. Against Tennessee, he looked pretty solid. And even against Kentucky, like, even though they lost that game by a lot, I still think that he didn't play that bad. As long as Florida doesn't find themselves in a position where they have to overly lean on the passing attack to win this game and they can still play complimentary football, utilizing their running backs, Montro Johnson, Trevor Etienne, they're going to be able to stick around and find a way to win this game. If Georgia blows out Florida, and let's say it's 28-10 in the first half, I think this game is over. You see, for Graham Mertz to be at his best, I think you got to have the run game going. When you have the run game going, you take some of the pressure off Graham Mertz. If Graham Mertz has to be put in a situation where he has to put this team on his shoulders to win, I don't think that's a winning formula for Florida to win this game. You got to play complimentary football anytime you're trying to beat Georgia. And I don't think that Graham Mertz is going to put up a Joe Burrow or C.J. Stroud-like performance. And he doesn't need to because this isn't the same historically great defense that we've seen out of Georgia when they have won back-to-back national championships. And that's why I think that Graham Mertz is a really big X factor in this game. Normally, to beat Georgia, you need great quarterback play. But I don't think that's the same case for Florida in this game with how this Bulldogs defense has tended to struggle at times. Like, the Vanderbilt quarterback was having his way against this defense. I can't remember his name. I don't really think it matters that much. But you're Georgia, and you're getting carved up by Vanderbilt. Like, there has to be some pause for concern. And the thing that really gives me a lot of confidence about Florida being able to keep this thing close is that Georgia's defense, I mean, what are they really good at stopping? They're not really good at stopping the pass. We saw their pass defense get shredded by Vanderbilt, and we saw their run defense get carved up by the Auburn. So Florida, they should be able to play a complimentary game. This should be a truly balanced football game for Florida. There isn't a single thing that Florida shouldn't be able to do offensively against this Georgia defense. Their defensive line doesn't have the same level of talent that it has had in the past. Yeah, they probably got a lot of five and four star guys on the defensive line, but they don't got three, four NFL guys on that defensive line this year that's going to be first round picks in next year's draft. So if Florida can't keep this thing close, I think if you're a Gators fan, you should be incredibly disappointed. I mean, people make it seem like Georgia's just this dominant team, and they haven't been. 
Now, I still believe they are the number one team in college football just based on what they have done in the past, but this season, they haven't really looked like it. But really, who has looked like the best team in college football? Michigan? Come on, who the fuck has Michigan played? The team I'm going to take to win this game, I'm going with Georgia still. But I do believe that Florida can cover. I think that this is going to be a one-possession game. It's going to be tightly contested. I think Georgia gets the win just because Florida's defense with Austin Armstrong as the defensive coordinator hasn't really been as good as what I thought it would be. All right? The secondary has been giving up big plays. And also, this defense against South Carolina, they didn't really play great. So if your defense is struggling against Spencer Rattler in South Carolina, what makes you think that you're going to be able to slow down Georgia's offense? Even though Georgia's offense, I do think that they probably will start this game out a little bit slow because anytime you're not going to have a guy like Brock Bowers on the field, it's going to take a little bit of time to get used to not having him. You're going to have to make some adjustments. And I don't think you're going to be able to figure out who's going to be that go-to guy during the bye week. I think that you're going to have to figure a lot of these things out in games. And as we progress throughout this game, I think that we will see Georgia, you know, throughout slowly, progressively get better. And then we get into the fourth quarter, and that's where I think Georgia kind of starts to put the hammer down. You see, the thing with Florida is that I love their offense in this game, but I don't really love their defense. And I do think that Florida's offense is going to be able to have success running the football and throwing the football, but their defense has been giving up a lot of big plays, and I just don't really trust them against a solid Georgia offense. And even then, Georgia has a really good offensive line. Florida's defensive line has a lot of talent and depth, but I don't think they're going to be good enough to be able to get after Carson Beck. So I'm taking Georgia to win this game. 27 to 24 is going to be my final score prediction. I think this game is going to come down to a last minute field goal. I think Graham Mertz is good enough to keep the Gators in this ball game. I don't think it's going to be a one side affair like how it has been in the past. I think that Florida has a way better team than what a lot of people are giving them credit for. They got a really good win against Tennessee. Tennessee is a solid football team. This was the same Tennessee team that was up at halftime 20-7 against Alabama on the road in Tuscaloosa. I think we need to give Florida a little bit more respect. Like Georgia hasn't been the dominant team that we've seen in the past. And I think we give Georgia a little bit too more too much props based on what they've done in past years. This hasn't been the same Georgia team that we've seen in 2021 and 2022 that's just so dominant on defense that Florida's offense isn't going to be able to do anything. Like, their secondary has been inconsistent. Their run defense has been inconsistent. And we've seen that be exploited plenty of times with Georgia throughout this year. But at the end of the day, though, you look at Florida's defense, on the other hand, yeah, like, I know Georgia's defense may not be that great, but Florida's defense... I'm not really buying it, and I don't really trust them against Georgia. That's why I got to take the Bulldogs. Now, Oklahoma almost lost to the Gus Bus last week. I did not see that coming. I don't really think too many people expected that game to be as close as what it was, but Oklahoma was able to escape. But are they going to be able to remain undefeated going on the road against the Kansas Jayhawks? Now, they're a 10-point favorite at this moment. 
Now, we don't know if Jalen Daniels is going to suit up and be able to play for the Jayhawks in this game. And if he doesn't play, then I definitely believe that Oklahoma is going to win this game convincingly and it's not going to be close. But the reason why we're talking about this matchup is because there's a really good chance that we do see Jalen Daniels play. And anytime Jalen Daniels plays, he's like dynamite. And I love Brent Venables as a head coach. And Oklahoma's defense has been really good this year. But we've seen this defense struggle against dynamic quarterbacks. John Rice Promley is one of the most dynamic dual threat quarterbacks in all of college football, and he kind of had a little bit of a solid performance against this OU defense. And going up against Kansas with Jalen Daniels hopefully being able to play, I do think that Jalen Daniels does play in this game. Jalen Daniels, with his ability to get outside the pocket, buy time for his receivers to get open, and also with how dynamic he is when he chooses to tuck the ball and run, is going to pose a really tough task for this OU defense. And Oklahoma's defense... I guess last week, maybe they just had a little bit of an off game, but they kind of had some busted plays on some busted coverages. It wasn't the kind of game that we've been accustomed to seeing out of OU's defense this year. Now, going against this Kansas offense, they got more playmakers than just Daniel, than Jalen Daniels. They got a really good running back. They got a pretty solid group of wide receivers. So Kansas does have some talent to be able to challenge this Oklahoma defense. Now, is Kansas defense going to be able to get some damn stops in this game? Because anytime I watch Kansas defense, they make me want to throw my damn TV. They struggle when it comes to making tackles. They give up a lot of big plays, not just on the ground, but in the passing game as well. I think Oklahoma should be able to put up points on every single possession that they get the ball on offense. The question is, how is this Oklahoma defense going to fare against this Jayhawks offense when Jalen Daniels is able to get healthy and suit up for this game? Because I do believe he should be able to play like he's missed the last couple of games and Kansas is coming off a bye. So if Jalen Daniels isn't healthy for this game, then I don't think he's ever going to be healthy. And if this ends up being a one-possession game, is this Kansas coaching staff going to be able to make the right late-game decisions? Because they pissed me off with the stunt that they pulled and their loss to Oklahoma State. So tell me why it's fourth and one. Every team is damn near utilizing the Philadelphia Eagles' brotherly shove or the tush push, whatever you want to call it. And instead of going with the QB sneak or the tush push, Kansas wants to get cute and call a bubble screen. In late-game situations, Lance Leopold and his coaching staff, they don't really have the best judgment. And that's really what concerns me about Kansas if they're able to keep this game close. Is the coaching staff going to be able to make the proper good calls on fourth down? Or are they going to try to get cute and fancy like how they did against Oklahoma State? So if Jalen Daniels plays, I do think that this game is going to be a lot closer than that 10-point spread, but I'm still going to have to go with Oklahoma, and I don't really view this as a potential upset. Many people are going to have this on their potential upset watch list or potential upset alert list, but even when Jalen Daniels, or if he's able to play in this game, I don't really think that Kansas is going to win, even though they are playing at home, because their defense is just not that good. Yeah, they got a great offense, and their offense may be able to go tick for tack, 
with this OU offense, and it probably could be a high-scoring affair in the first half. But the thing about it is that whose defense do you trust more to get more key stops in this game, Oklahoma or Kansas? I got to go with Oklahoma. Yeah, Kansas has a prime opportunity to pull off an upset because they are playing at home. And we already know anytime you got a team that's a favorite that has to go on the road, most of the times, that's where the upsets occur. But in this situation, Kansas doesn't really have a dependable defense that Kansas can lean on and be like, yeah, like, get us a stop and go win us the game. If anything, you need this game to be close and you need this game to be in Jalen Daniels' hands for Kansas to have an opportunity to win it. And if Jalen Daniels doesn't play, I don't really think that this game is going to be all that close. Now, Jason Bean isn't bad. Jason Bean is a pretty solid quarterback, but there definitely is a significant drop-off between him and Jalen Daniels. I don't really think that Oklahoma should be on upset watch this week. I don't think that this is one of those upset alert games. I think as long as Kansas you know, has Jalen Daniels, they're going to be able to put points up on the board and they may be able to go point for point with, point for point with Oklahoma for the first couple of quarters. But eventually, Oklahoma's defense is going to get a couple of stops and Kansas defense, they're not going to be a, able to get enough of those stops unless Oklahoma has one of those games where they come out and they start out a little sloppy and they're giving the football away and they're beating themselves and that's different. But as long as Oklahoma comes in and they play a disciplined game, they don't beat themselves, I think they should be able to handle business against Kansas. The last time we saw Coach Prime and the Colorado Buffaloes, they choked a 29-point a lead against Stanford. So they definitely needed a bye week to go back and hit the drawing board and reevaluate themselves. Now they're back and they're going on the road to the Rose Bowl, which is sold out, by the way. And they're playing up against a really good UCLA team. UCLA is a 17-point favorite in this game, and I understand why. UCLA has the second-best defense in the Pac-12 this year, right behind Utah. There's nothing that this defense can't do. They're really good against the run. They're really good against the pass. They got a solid secondary, and they got a really good pass rush. When we look at Colorado, we know what has been the biggest limitation with this offense. The fact that this offensive line can't block Shadur Sanders to save their freaking life. And you wonder how this offensive line is going to perform against a really good front seven of UCLA. Now, UCLA secondary is pretty solid. But at the same time, I don't think they're going to be able to shut down this receiving core. They're not going to be able to shut down Xavier Weaver, Jimmy Horn, and especially Travis Hunter. The thing is that is Shadur Sanders going to have enough time to go to work on that Bruins secondary. This is the most healthiest that Colorado has been all season long. Even going into their week one win against TCU, the guys that they have healthy now weren't healthy back then. Like Alt McCaskill at running back. I would love to see Alt McCaskill get at least 13 to 15 touches in this game because I think that he's the most talented running back that Colorado has on their roster. When you look at what he did his freshman season in 2021 at Houston, he had 16 touchdowns. He was averaging five yards per carry as a freshman. And then the brief glimpses that we've seen out of Alt McCaskill when he has got some 
reps in game. He's looked really impressive. It's just that they just tend to get away from him. I definitely think that we need to see more out of Alton McCaskill in this game if Colorado's going to be able to pull off this win. The run game has been a little bit better for Colorado in their last couple of matchups. They have been able to run the football at times. Still not as effectively as what you would like to see, but the run game has been there. And if you're going to beat UCLA, you can't be a one-dimensional team. Now, we know that this team is going to be led by Shadur Sanders, and he's going to have to play well. But at the same time, you're still going to have to be able to run the football to give him a little bit of a breather. I don't think this is one of those games that Colorado's going to be able to win just by airing the football out because a large reason why their offensive line struggles is because these defensive lines are able to pin their ears back and just go after the quarterback because they know that you're no threat to run the football. Therefore, they don't have to fear you running the football. If you can run the football in this game, then you make the defense think twice. Now they got to think, okay, like, are they going to run it or are they going to pass? They just can't pull their ears back and just play the pass all game long. So I definitely think all McCaskill could be a really big part of getting that run game going against a really good UCLA front. Now, when you look at Colorado's defense against UCLA's offense, I mean, it's a mismatch. But anytime Colorado's defense is on the field, it looks like a mismatch. Now, UCLA, they're not extremely talented at wide receiver. So I would be extremely surprised if whoever starts at quarterback for UCLA is just dotting up this Colorado secondary. Because UCLA, they got a couple of good wide receivers, but they're not insanely deep at wide receiver like how USC and Oregon were. But even then, when you have a secondary that's been as bad as what Colorado's has been, you can make even average wide receivers look better than what they truly are. Now, Colorado doesn't know who the hell is going to be playing quarterback for UCLA this week. Previously, Dante Moore was starting at quarterback for the Bruins up until last week against Stanford where Chip Kelly said that he wasn't healthy enough to play and they started Ethan Garbers and Ethan Garbers played really well. And Chip Kelly in his press conference when he was discussing this game and breaking this game down in detail, he said that he believes that they have three quarterbacks on this roster that are good enough to start on the majority of teams in Power 5 football this year. That not only includes Ethan Garbers and Dante Moore, but also Colin Schley, who also is listed on the injury report. But whoever plays quarterback for UCLA is going to force Colorado to have to switch things up defensively. If Dante Moore comes in, you could play a little bit more aggressively because Dante Moore, outside of the first couple of games of this year where they were playing against inferior competition, he hasn't looked that good. He struggled to take care of the football, and this offense has been anemic with him and that quarterback because he's a true freshman quarterback. He was playing high school around this time last year, so there's a lot of growing pains that comes with starting a young quarterback like Dante Moore. And if you're Chip Kelly... Do you really want to risk throwing Dante Moore out there in a game like this? Where Colorado is, is one of those teams that offensively, if you give them extra possessions, they're going to make you pay. Now, if you start Ethan Garbers, you don't have the dual threat ability that Dante Moore has. And Colorado's pass rush, although it isn't great, 
they do have a tendency to be able to get pressure on the quarterback at times, all right? It's not like this pass rush is non-existent. They can get a little bit of pressure on you here or there, just not as consistently as what you would like. So with Dante Moore in there at quarterback, you get somebody who's going to be able to make things happen when things start to break down in the pocket. Ethan Garbers, I don't think he has the same amount of mobility as a guy like Dante Moore has, which kind of is an advantage for Colorado because then your defensive ends don't have to worry about staying in contained and worrying about the quarterback getting outside and making things happen. When you have a guy who's more so of a pocket passer, it makes things a little bit easier on the defense because then you don't have to worry about, you know, a quarterback breaking outside the pocket and picking up like 10, 15 yards with his legs. Now, if Dante Moore does start, however, over Ethan Garbers, you can be a little bit aggressive because there's a lot of looks that you could throw at Dante Moore that he may not be prepared for. And anytime he gets pressure sent after him, he panics. And that's what you expect out of a young quarterback. I think Ethan Garbers, being a more calm and a more experienced quarterback, gives UCLA a better chance to have more success offensively than what Dante Moore does. Now, Dante Moore... He shouldn't struggle in this game if he does start. He probably will have a couple of turnovers here and there. But for the most part, with how Colorado's defense has played, this shouldn't be a performance that he had against Washington State or in the past when UCLA has gone up against a really good defense because Colorado doesn't have a really good defense. I think a large reason why we've seen Dante Moore struggle up to this point this season and his last couple of games that he's appeared in is because UCLA has played against some of the best defenses in the Pac-12. If he starts in this game, this definitely could be one of those games where he could get his confidence back. But if you start Ethan Garbers, I think he gives you a better chance to win just because you're going to be more efficient at taking care of the football. And I think your passing attack can be really good with Ethan Garbers. Now, Colorado, I think we need to see more of Kamani McLean. And Buffalo fans keep going back and forth with me on this. Listen, I get that Kamani McLean, he may be showing up the meetings not on time and he may not have the best practice habits. But at the same time, there's no way you can throw out number 23 again after how he got cooked by Stanford. And the other cornerback they got, number three, Amarian Cooper, I don't really think he's that better. The best cornerback that Colorado has on their team is Travis Hunter. Outside of him, any other cornerback is a liability to get beat, even though they are going against a UCLA team that only really has one or two good wide receivers and they're not as deep as Oregon or USC. When you have an average wide receiving core going up against a below average secondary, the average receiving core is going to look better more times than not because of the bad secondary play that Colorado has had this season. For Colorado, we need to see Kormani McLean play some significant snaps in this game. I think that Kormani McLean most definitely is the second best cornerback on this team. He got benched against Arizona State after a couple of bad snaps and a couple of bad plays, but number 23 can get cooked all game long against Stanford and not have to worry about getting taken out of the bench. That makes no sense for me. And another thing that I need to see out of Colorado is that you wonder... How disciplined is Colorado going to be? 
Because at the start of this season, when they were 3-0, and they didn't really have a lot of penalties. They didn't beat themselves. Well, since they kind of went on this little bit of a cold streak, you had all kinds of dumb penalties like too many men on the field, illegal substitution. Colorado can't be stepping on their toes in this game. They need to get back to being a fundamentally sound team, being able to, you know, not beat themselves up in the foot, being able to figure out how to limit the costly penalties and also being a team that has emotional discipline and emotional composure. Shadur Sanders is really the only player on this team that is composed in tough situations. Everybody else seems to have these costly penalties like Travis Hunter and their loss against Stanford had like a dumb penalty that kind of put Colorado in a little bit of a bond. I think it was an unsportsmanlike conduct penalty. Like Colorado needs to do a better job at learning how to play emotionally. They need to do a better job at learning how to play emotionally, but being able to control that emotion. Football is an emotional game. We get that. But at the same time, Having emotional composure is key to being able to beat a top 25 team like UCLA. UCLA, they're not a team that's going to beat you by having all kinds of undisciplined penalties that Colorado has been prone to have in their losses. So the team I'm going to take to win this game, I'm going with the Buffs. And this may be a surprise to you, but UCLA, they're a solid football team. But I definitely think that Colorado them coming off a bye, them being the most healthiest that they have been all season, you're going to be able to go up against a team that offensively, they're not as deep as USC and Oregon. And I know Stanford didn't really have a good offense because they got shut down by UCLA, but I just think that's a game that Colorado let get away from them. I don't think we're going to see the same thing happen against UCLA. I think this is going to be a team that's going to be more focused. They're going to be locked in. They're coming off a bye weekend. UCLA, their defense is going to keep them in this game. But if this ends up being a high-scoring affair, I like Colorado to walk away with it. They just have so much more talent on offense than what UCLA has. The only advantage that I think UCLA really has offensively in this game when you're comparing the two offenses is that they got a better offensive line and Carson Steele is one of the better running backs in the Pac-12. That's just about it. I think that Colorado is better and deep at wide receiver than UCLA. They obviously have the quarterback advantage in Shadur Sanders. And anytime you have the quarterback advantage in the majority of games that you play in, you're going to have a chance to win as long as Colorado can give Shadur Sanders time to throw the football. And that's going to be really tough to do against a really good UCLA defense. But I don't think UCLA's defense is deep enough or talented enough just to shut down and hold this Colorado offense down like how Oregon was able to do or how USC was able to do in the first half when they played. So give me the buffs to win. 38-27 to 27 is my final score prediction for this ball game. Utah is at home taking on Oregon. And is Utah going to be able to pull off their second consecutive upset of the season? Because they weren't favored to beat USC, and they obviously should have been because they looked like the better team when they played the Trojans. This week, they're going up against the second-best team in the Pac-12 in Oregon. And this game is really tough to predict because on one end, 
you don't want to count out Utah because even though Utah has all these injuries and they're on their third, fourth string quarterback who was a pig farmer prior to becoming the starting quarterback for this team, you can't count this team out because Kyle Winningham is just so good of a damn coach. Oregon, yeah, they have the significant talent advantage in this game, but Utah, they're well-coached, they're well-disciplined, they don't beat themselves, and plus, they got the best damn defense in the Pac-12. If Utah can slow down Oregon's offense, they definitely have a very good chance at being able to pull off this upset. Plus, it also helps that Utah is playing this game at home. And anytime you're playing at home, you're going to have the home field advantage. And it's going to prove to be a big disadvantage to the team that's playing on the road. Bo Nix has been really consistent. This Oregon offense has been consistent all year long. Oregon isn't the same team that USC is. I think with Oregon, you're going to see a team that is going to be way better defensively. And you're also going to see an offense that's just going to be way more efficient. USC had a lot of limitations going into that game against Utah. Their offensive line wasn't that great. And Caleb Williams kind of had to carry that load. For Oregon, this is just a completely all-around great football team. Great offensive line, great quarterback play, great receivers, great running backs, a really good defense that can really get after you. And listen, Bryson Barnes played the best game that we've seen out of him and all the starts that he's gotten for the Utes this year. I found it surprising how Bryson Barnes kind of struggled in his previous games and then all of a sudden he goes against Alex Grinch's defense and he looks like the next great thing at quarterback for Utah. I want to see if Bryson Barnes is going to be able to carry over his performance from last week's win over USC into this game against a way better and a way more complete team. USC wasn't great on the defensive line. Oregon is really good on the defensive line. If you're Utah, you don't want this game to become a game where you got to end up throwing the football to keep up because this isn't USC. This is Oregon. They got a way better coaching staff and they got a way better defense. I still think the formula for Utah has to be running the football. Now, Bryson Barnes yeah, you're going to ask him to make a couple of throws here and there. He's going to need to be. But the run game really has to be the core reason why Utah is able to have success offensively. And their running back core is depleted. Like, Sione Vaki, he's a safety. I didn't even know he was playing safety. I thought he was just another running back. We just haven't seen him. So the fact that they got guys who have to play two different positions, playing guy running back tells you everything you need to know about the injuries that this team has been enduring. And eventually you wonder, when are these injuries going to start to be a factor and a hindrance to Utah? Because Oregon, I mean, they obviously are the way more superior team from a talent standpoint. The thing with Utah is that their defense is so good that even if their offense struggles in this game, as long as their defense shows up, it's going to allow them to stay in the game. And it's going to allow their offense some opportunities to maybe get a couple of big plays here or there. But you can tell that Utah's offense isn't that great because they oftentimes have to revert the trick plays to get the ball rolling. Like Utah's just trying to find ways to win games. And they got so many different ways that they can beat you. The thing with Oregon is that you can end this game 
pretty early if you get out to a big lead. If you get out to a 21-28 point lead at any point during this game, it's over because Utah is not one of those teams that's built to come from behind having to deal with a multiple possession deficit. You see, against USC, they were always in that ball game. Against Oregon, though, if Oregon gets up on you by three, four touchdowns, then you're really going to have to rely on Bryson Barnes to carry you. And I don't think that's Utah's formula to win in this game. You see, the thing with Utah that has allowed them to overachieve this season, despite all the injuries that they dealt with, is that they still are able to play complimentary football even when they didn't have the best quarterback playing they had the other guy in that quarterback over Bryson Barnes with how good they were able to run the football they were able to win games against Oregon Oregon has a pretty good defense and if you can't run the ball with Jaquindon Jackson then this game is going to be really difficult for you to be able to win because you see, Oregon's secondary is a lot better than USC's. And even though Washington was able to get some big plays on this Oregon secondary, Utah doesn't have the same talent at wide receiver that Washington does. And Utah kind of is outmatched when it comes to skill position in this game. Like, outside of Devon Vele, they don't really have a consistent wide receiver that they can look to throw the football to. They also are without their best weapon on offense and Brant Keithy, who still is dealing with an injury. So this doesn't really look like one of those games that Utah is going to be able to win just simply by throwing the football. And when you go back to the win against USC, they're running back. Sione Vaki led the team in receiving yards. So anytime you got a running back that's leading your team in receiving yards by a lot like how he was, and a lot of his plays came on blown assignments by USC, if Oregon can find a way to limit the production of Utah's running backs, Utah is going to be in a lot of trouble. Because their running backs really are like the main focal point of their offense. Rather it be running the football or throwing the football. So if Oregon can shut down Jaquindon Jackson and they can find a way to stop Sione Vaki for having the impact in the past game that he had last week. Utah is going to be in a lot of trouble offensively because they're not that deep at receiver. They don't really have a lot of talent there. And they're not really a team that's built to come from large deficits. This is a team that is built on playing hard-nosed defense and being a scrappy football team, not beating themselves. You see, Utah is one of those teams that they go into games and they're saying, man, you better not let this game be close going into the fourth quarter because you're going to regret it. Meanwhile, Oregon, you know, they just go ahead and grab Utah by their neck and just rip them open and they're up 28 to 7 at halftime I don't see how Utah is going to be able to come back from that that's not their style of football and Oregon you know this is my question with them right what if this does come a matchup where Utah is able to play their style of football they're able to you know be that physical team they're able to be that dominant team on the line of scrimmage and Oregon isn't able to stop the run game, that would be the worst nightmare situation for Dan Lanning and company. Because you see, what Utah wants to do is they want to show their physicality. They're the most physical team in the Pac-12. They remind me a lot of those 
early 2010 Wisconsin teams. You know, those early 2010 Wisconsin teams, their offense wasn't really anything special. They just were really good up front, and they were really good running the football and playing really good defense. That's the kind of team that Utah is. And that's why Utah has been able to pull up a lot of upsets because a lot of teams in the Pac-12 simply just don't match Utah's physicality. USC is never able to match Utah's physicality. And I wonder if Oregon is going to fall in line in that same conversation. You see, I don't know just truly how good of a team Oregon is when it comes to being physical, playing a physical style of football. I kind of view Oregon and Washington more so as finesse teams. Now, Oregon does have a really good rushing attack. Bucky Irving is one of the more underrated running backs in all of college football. And if he declares for next year's draft, he's going to be my number one RB. I mean, he's really good after contact. He has really good contact balance, really good vision. And Utah's defense if they're not able to slow him down and let's say Bucky Irving gets going, let's say Oregon wants to try to take a playbook out of Utah's playbook and let's say Oregon wants to go ahead and try to control the clock and they want to keep Utah's defense on the field and keep Utah's offense off the field, I think that could also be a recipe for Oregon to win this game. I don't think they just need to come out and blow Utah out. I think another way Oregon can beat Utah is by trialing to steal what Utah wants to do. Utah wants to be that team to keep your offense off the field, and they want to be that team that can win the town possession battle. But anytime you have an offense that struggles like Utah, you see they need all the possessions that they can get. And Utah's offense is not great. Yeah, they looked good last week because they were playing up against USC. And I know you Utah fans are going to feel like I'm hating on y'all, but y'all watch these games. You know your team. And be honest, you know that Utah is not an offensive juggernaut. You know for Utah to be able to win this game, you got to keep it close. And this has to be a game that is close going into the fourth quarter where you're only down 10 points at most. I'm taking Oregon to win this game. I think they win this game pretty convincingly. I'll say they win this game 35 or 38 to 17 is my final score prediction. Look, I get that Utah is playing at home. And Utah is a very well-coached football team. And I got a lot of respect for Kyle Winningham and what he's built at that Utah program. But eventually, you're going to get into a game where you're just going to be inequipped to keep up with some of the more talented teams. And I definitely think that this is going to be one of those games where Oregon just is so more superior talent-wise that Utah's offense, you know, with how abysmal it kind of has been at times, I don't think their great defense is going to be enough for them to stay in this game. You're going to have to be able to put up some points on Oregon. Like, even if you do get a couple of stops, is your offense going to be able to capitalize if you're able to get a couple of turnovers or two on Oregon? Is your offense going to be able to muster enough points where they can keep up with Oregon? Because you see, this isn't going to be one of those games where Utah can be able to win only putting up 17 or 20 points. Like, if you want to win this game, you at least have to be able to put up 27. Yeah, I saw you put up 30 against USC, and you were able to win that game, which was a pretty high-scoring affair, which kind of surprised a lot of people. But you were going up against one of the worst coach defenses in all of college football. 
Going up against Oregon, you're not going to have that same luxury. You're just playing a better all-around football team. And I definitely think that this is one of those games that is going to get away from Utah due to the lack of talent and the lack of production that they're going to get from their offense. So give me the Oregon Ducks with the win. Before I give you guys my college football playoff rankings, I, I got to take a sip of water real quick. If you haven't already, make sure that you leave a like, subscribe to the channel. We go live Monday through Wednesday around 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern time. Remember that we're not just a YouTube channel. Every episode of the podcast is available in audio format on all podcasting platforms, Apple, Google, Spotify, Amazon, wherever you get your podcast from, the JT Sports Podcast is available. I want to give you guys my week nine college football playoff rankings. A lot of you guys had a lot of things to say about my rankings that I released last week. And these week's rankings, I think, shouldn't really get as much criticism as last week's did. But we'll see, man. At 25, I got Tennessee. They're coming off a disappointing loss to Alabama where they had a 20-7 lead at halftime. And then Alabama scored 27 unanswered. I still think that Tennessee is a solid team, and even though they don't really have a quality win yet, in my opinion, I still think they deserve to be on here because, you know, they lost to Alabama, so I'm not going to drop them out. Oklahoma State enters my top 25 at 24. Oklahoma State is one of those teams that kind of has turned their season around when it looked like their season was about to go left. They lost really early this year to South Alabama, but... Ever since then, this has been a team that's been trending in the right direction. Their offense has been playing better. They're really good running the football. They got a really good running back. And their quarterback has also played pretty well over the last couple of weeks as well. And I'm really excited to see what they do when they play Oklahoma in the next couple of weeks. Tulane, I finally have them on my top 25. The reason why I was struggling to put Tulane on here is because they're not undefeated. And plus, they haven't really had any games that really have been super impressive to me. Like, they beat North Texas, and they were a double-digit favorite against North Texas. And that game came down to one possession. But they still are one of the best G5 schools in America. And it was only a matter of time before I could stop leaving them out. So they enter in at 23. UCLA is coming in at number 22. They're playing Colorado this week. Colorado, to me, still is a top 50 team. And UCLA, I think they really need that win against Colorado because if they lose Colorado, then they got to fall out of my top 25. There's just no way you can be a three-loss team and you lose to Colorado and you still be ranked in the top 25. I think UCLA offensively they've had their struggles they've had their ups and downs more so due to them having a young quarterback and Dante Moore who has started the majority of this season Ethan Garber started for them last week against Stanford but they do have the second best defense in the Pac-12 right behind Utah they're really good against the run they also are really good against the pass they got a pretty good secondary and they got a really fantastic pass rush also and Duke they're in that 21. I didn't drop them too much, 
because they did give Florida State a pretty competitive game. It doesn't matter what the final score shows. If you watch that game, that game between Duke and FSU was way closer than what the box score may indicate. And even when their starting quarterback, Riley Leonard, went down, like, they were still fighting. So I got you. I got Duke in at 21. I just think that Duke is just too good of a team just to leave them off just because they lost to Notre Dame and FSU. I dropped UNC all the way from number 10 to number 20 because how the fuck do you lose to Virginia, man? They're one of the worst schools in the whole entire nation. And Drake May didn't really have his best performance. Like UNC, I had to drop them a good bit because you can't lose to a one-win team and just still only drop a couple of spots. I damn near dropped them out of the top 25, but they have played a pretty impressive schedule up to this point. They do got a really good one against Miami, so I do have to give them credit for that. And I can't completely drop a team out just because they lose their first game of the season. You know, upsets happen. That's part of college football. So I can't penalize UNC as much as how I wanted to. Still got to keep them in my top 25. I got them at 20, but that Virginia loss was really disappointing. Florida moves up. They're at number 19. Most people don't have them on their top 25. And many people are going to say, well, who has Florida beaten? That's a really good win. Well, they still got a win against Tennessee. And that win does mean something. They did beat South Carolina in Vanderbilt. And I think that Florida is playing some of their best football. Their offense is clicking. Grant Mertz looks really good. The run game also is really good. You got the best running back duo in the SEC and Trevor Etienne and Montreal Johnson. And they're playing up against the Georgia Bulldogs this week. And I definitely think that they're going to be able to keep that game close with Georgia. I got them at number 19. James Madison, I got them at number 18. To me, they most likely will be the best group of five team in all of college football this year. They got a great defense. They got a really fantastic offense. Air Force, they're the best of the military academies. They're 7-0. They're on pace to have their best season ever. They probably should get the 10 wins. Either one of these two teams, James Madison or Air Force, could be in contention to make it to a New Year's Six Bowl game. I think there's a good possibility that both of them remain undefeated. But the thing with James Madison is that I don't think they're eligible for a postseason game because they're coming from the FCS. And anytime you come from the FCS to the FBS, like you got to wait a couple of years before you're eligible to qualify for a conference championship game or a bowl game but it's still nice to see James Madison having the success that they've had this season and I gotta give them a lot of props and I got them at 18 and Air Force is going to come in at 17 I wouldn't be surprised if Air Force ends up running the table and they end up going unbeaten and if they go unbeaten there's a strong possibility that they probably crack my top 10 Louisville is in that 16 I'm still not over them losing to Pittsburgh, but I'm still and really high on them. They got a pretty good defense. Their offense is pretty solid as well. At 15, we got Missouri. Now, Missouri is really interesting, right? Because Missouri pretty much controls their own destiny. If Missouri wins out, they're going to be able to not just win the SEC East, but they also could make it to the SEC championship game. And they got a matchup with Georgia just around the corner. Now, they got to go on the road to play Georgia. 
And then after they play Georgia, they got to play Tennessee, Florida, and Arkansas. But if Missouri can win out, they beat Georgia, they beat Tennessee, Florida, and Arkansas, they'll be a one-loss team. And without a doubt, they would be in contention to make it to the college football playoffs. They got a really fantastic coaching staff. Their offense has been incredible this year. Brady Cook has been one of the best quarterbacks in this conference. Luther Burden has been arguably the second best wide receiver in college football right behind Marvin Harrison Jr. So they pretty much control their own destiny. Their only loss this season came to LSU and that was a pretty close game, but they still got a lot of decent wins. They got that win over Kansas State, which Kansas State is now starting to surge depending on what Kansas State does this week. They also could crack my top 25. They beat Kentucky pretty handily on the road and I would love to see them play LSU again in a rematch because I really believe that Missouri probably will win that game. At 14, we got LSU. LSU with the two losses. Some people may feel like they still should be a little bit lower than what they are, but LSU still has the wins over Missouri. And even though they did lose to Ole Miss, that was a game that came down to the wire. That was a game that probably could have went either way. So LSU's only two losses come to Ole Miss and they come to FSU week one. Outside of that, LSU has handled business. They beat Auburn, which Auburn is a pretty solid football team, even though I don't really think it's a good enough win to, you know, be a resume booster. But I mean, LSU has taken care of business. They pretty much have been any team that hasn't been ranked by a pretty comfortable margin. And they got a date with Alabama coming up within the next couple of weeks. Then they got to play Florida. They got to play a really good Georgia State team. And then you got Texas A&M, the final game of the regular season. So the month of October is going to be really big for LSU. And if LSU can win out, they may be able to be the first team to get into the college football playoffs having two losses. So I still do think that LSU controls their destiny. Notre Dame, I think they are the best two-loss team in America right now because they have played the toughest schedule in college football this year. I mean, you have to play Ohio State, which only lost that game by three. You beat Duke by a touchdown. Yeah, you lost to Louisville, but you did beat USC. And your next couple of games coming up, you're playing Pittsburgh, Clemson, Wake Forest, and Stanford. So you should be able to win out. And if you win out, I don't think you're going to be able to make it into the playoffs. You may be able to get to a New Year's Six Bowl game, but you just don't have any more resume builders on your schedule. Even though a win against Clemson is always something that you should get a lot of props for. It's just that Notre Dame, the schedule is just so tough that you needed that win against Louisville or Ohio State to still be in a mix to make it to the college football playoffs. So even though you got two losses along with LSU, I just think with LSU having matchups against Alabama and Florida, they're going to have a better chance to boost their resume than what Notre Dame's going to have. And plus, they're going to be playing in the conference championship game also, which possibly could be against Georgia. So Georgia, you know, they lose to LSU with LSU winning out. They win the SEC. I don't see how they don't get into the college football playoffs. 
Utah moved them up a couple of spots. I had them at number 15 last week. They come in at number 12. I don't know how the hell they still only have one loss. That one loss coming to Oregon State, I believe. This is a team that is comprised of backup parts. Literally, like their quarterback, Bryson Barnes, who led them to that win over USC last week, this dude was a pig farmer. He's a walk-on. They got a guy named Siani Vaki, who was a safety, who now is playing running back because they've been so depleted at that position. Like Kyle Winningham, without a doubt, either him or Eli Drinkowitz should be coach of the year this year. I got them at 12. If they beat Oregon, they most definitely are going to crack my top 10. And if they went out, you definitely got to put them in the college football playoffs. Like, yeah, they'll have one loss, but, I mean, they played a gauntlet of a schedule. The Pac-12 has been a gauntlet, and their only loss would be to Oregon State. So they still very well are in the mix to be in that playoff discussion. Oregon State, their schedule is about to get incredibly tough over the next couple of weeks. You got to play Arizona, an Arizona team that has been playing some really good football. You got Colorado, you got Stanford, and then your last two games of the regular season are what's going to make or break you. You got to play Washington, and you got to play Oregon, your arch rival. If you can win those two games and you end up making it to the Pac-12 championship game, even though you do have a close loss to Washington State, I still think that you have a chance to be a participant in the college football playoffs. Now we get into my top 10. Ole Miss is a team that nobody is talking about. And Ole Miss controls their destiny pretty much. Their only loss came to Alabama, which Alabama pretty much stumped them. It wasn't really close. I believe they lost that game 24-3. But remember, Ole Miss has a win against Tulane who is ranked in the top 25. They also have a win against LSU. And if they can find a way to beat Georgia, there's a really strong chance that we could have an argument for Ole Miss being in the college football playoffs, maybe, depending on if we have a little bit more chaos that happens in front of them. But if they can beat Georgia, that would be one of the biggest wins of the season for any squad. And they lost to Alabama 24-10, not 24-3, excuse me. I was wrong about that one. But Ole Miss, I still think that they're not out of the mix just quite yet. Oregon, they're 6-1. and one. They got a date against a really good team this week in Utah, which they're playing them on the road in Salt Lake. If they can beat Utah, I definitely think that they become a little bit closer to getting back into the top five maybe. And they possibly could be in a rematch with Washington in the Pac-12 championship game if Washington is able to win out. Alabama, they got a really good win against Tennessee. I got them at number eight. And Alabama, to their credit, they have exceeded a lot of people's expectations because most people coming in thought that Alabama was potentially going to be a two or three loss team this season. They come in at number eight. Their schedule still is pretty tough. They still got to play LSU, although they're playing LSU at home this year. Then their last couple of games right after they play LSU, you got to play Kentucky on the road. You got Chattanooga, and then you got to play in the Iron Bowl, which you can never count out Auburn, especially when you got Hugh Freeze as their head coach. But if Alabama can beat LSU and they win out and they win the SEC championship game, I believe they probably get into the college football playoffs, which would be crazy. 
because their only loss would be to Texas, who I have ranked above them. Now, Texas, I don't know if they're going to be able to survive with the injury to Quinn Ewers. Now, they still got Malik Murphy, and he played really well in the spring game, and there were a lot of schools who kind of wanted his services. But when you look at Texas' schedule coming up, like, I'm really starting to believe that Texas is going to end up suffering an upset loss eventually. Rather, that be BYU this week, Kansas State the next week, then you got TCU, Iowa State, and Texas Tech coming up. Like, I just got a strong suspicion that we're going to see Texas walking out of this season with another loss, and I think a second loss probably derails their playoff chances. Washington, I had them in my top five last week. Had to drop them out after their abysmal performance against Arizona State. Yeah, I'm a little bit biased against them because I did have them on my parlay, which they blew. Because how do you struggle against Washington State? Like, Washington, not Washington State, Arizona State. How do you struggle against a team that doesn't have a lot of depth? Arizona State is lacking so much depth that they got to get guys to try out for members to be on their field goal unit. That's how bad the death situation is for the Arizona State Sun Devils. And Michael Penix had an awful performance. He definitely would not be number one on my Heisman power rankings when that drops tomorrow. Washington, with how they played, yeah, they still got an impressive win over Oregon, but had to drop them with that abysmal performance that they put up against Arizona State. And then my top five. Arizona is at number five. I dropped them also. I put Michigan in my top four. Even though I don't like Michigan being ranked this high because they haven't beaten anybody that's been any good outside of Rutgers. Like, I can't give you a lot of brownie points when you're beating up on Bowling Green, Eastern Carolina, Indiana, Michigan State with not really having a true head coach there, but Oklahoma almost lost to UCF in the gust bus, and UCF is one of the worst teams in the Big 12 this year, so I had to put Michigan over Oklahoma just for this week, because if Michigan would have played UCF, they would have blew those boys out of the water. Georgia is in that number three. The reason why I got them in that number three is just because Florida State and Ohio State have had way more impressive victories than what Georgia has had over the last couple of weeks. Florida State beat a really good Duke team that's ranked inside of my top 25, and Ohio State may have the best resume in all of college football right now. They got a really big win against Notre Dame on the road, albeit it was close, and they got a really good win against a top 10 team in Penn State. And the thing with Penn State is that I didn't even rank them anymore because here's the thing with Penn State. They haven't played anybody. And with them not playing anybody, their best win being against Iowa, I couldn't have them in my top 25 anymore. Like, I'm just so disgusted with James Franklin and company that I just completely left them off my top 25. Like, until Penn State can bounce back and get a big win, I'm not putting them on my top 25 anymore. Like, I'm just severely disgusted with what I saw out of Penn State against Ohio State. Like, they had absolutely zero offense. And if I'm going to penalize Michigan for not really playing anybody good, I got to have the same energy with Penn State. And Penn State, them not really having a significant win is a big reason why I didn't have them on my rankings. And I know that's going to cause a lot of people to get upset. And I know a lot of people are going to have some hurt feelings over it. But I mean, that just was an ugly loss that they had to Ohio State. And although you lost to Ohio State, I mean, that was the best team that you played up to this point this season. 
And this is also a ranking that I like to do based on strength of schedule, and Penn State doesn't really have it. So if I'm harping on Michigan for not playing anybody, I got to have that same energy with Penn State. They dropped out of my top 25 this week. So these are my week nine college football playoff rankings. Let me know what you guys think about them down in the comment section down below. And this is it for this episode of the JT Sports Podcast. If you enjoyed tonight's episode, leave a like, subscribe to the channel. We go live Monday through Wednesday around 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern time. Rate the JT Sports Podcast five stars if you enjoyed. You can find us on Apple, Google, Spotify, and Amazon. And I will see you guys tomorrow with another episode of the JT Sports Podcast.